Welcome to the Eric Metaxas Show with your host, Eric Metaxas. Folks, I have a surprise for you. His name is John Zmirak. Release the Zmirak. John, um, you're uh, I, I always get happy talking to you, which is a good thing. Um, I uh, I want to talk to you about two things which I know you're you, you want to talk about. Number one, you did a review of the film that I've been talking about so much, Mr. Jones. Yeah. Uh, so I want to talk to you about that. Uh, I also want to talk to you about an article that you wrote for the stream, which you're really um, going out on a limb by saying what you're saying. I think what you're saying in the article is deadly accurate, but it's still a bold thing for you to say. So why don't we talk about this bold thing and we'll get to the fun uh, movie review stuff uh, in a moment. So you wrote an article at the stream. Talk about it. Yeah. The title is Donald Trump is the Martin Luther King of the working class and Christians. No wonder the FBI is persecuting. Now, when you say Christians, obviously Martin Luther King was reverend and many of the people following him were, were serious Christians. What you mean, just because I want people to track right, with I'll be parallel. Christians were not singled out for being Christians and persecuted or discriminated against in 1950s and 60s. It was black people. OK, today, conservative Orthodox Christians are tar- singled, at, singled out and targeted and disadvantaged by the government and spat upon by the official regime and its propaganda ministries. So today, conservatives and Christians and working class Americans are in a disadvantaged position, <clears throat> are, de- are detested, held in contempt by our elites who hold the power. And this is a parallel with how black Americans were being treated around 1955, 1960. Okay, now this is the part that you can't say, except you've said it, and I'm agreeing with you. Why? Why? Because it's true. Folks, when something is true, be careful not to say it. When something is true, be careful not to say it. The persecution of black people in this country is one of the one of the most horrifying things in our history. It is despicable. Why? Because it is fundamentally anti-American. It is uh, much worse than that. It is fundamentally anti-God and inhuman. And we acknowledge it. But where we are today, the parallel that John is, is drawing out, which is clear, is that the people in power, whom can they persecute today? They're not persecuting black Americans today in the way that they were before for many reasons. But but whom is it possible to demonize and to persecute and to attempt to crush? That is the people who voted for Donald Trump. Many of them are working class. Most of them are working class people. And at the heart of that as well are those who are called conservative evangelicals or conservative Catholics, people who say the unborn should not be killed, uh, people who have biblical values with regard to sexuality and the human person. John, what you have written is very brave. What is the title of the article at stream.org? Hey, when people tell me I'm being brave because I usually didn't realize it. Uh, 
Donald Trump is the MLK of the working class and Christians. No wonder the FBI is persecuting him too. So first, I want to re- re- reiterate that our regime, the government currently in place, I'm not going to call it a legitimate government or a freely elected government, but the apparatus of power, the oligarchy that clings to police and military power in America, um, it wants to crack down on conservative Christians. It wants to see the working class die off, be replaced by immigrants, be replaced by robots. Remember uh, Barack Obama speaking contemptuously of people who cling to their guns and their Bibles. What does that mean? I mean, he sounded like a Soviet talking about the the trash heap of history or, or a Nazi talking about the inferior races, according to Nazi theory. The left hates us. That's why they want to take our guns, destroy our jobs, close our churches, and force us to eat bugs, to drive our electric cars, to get some bugs from the bugs. But John, you, you, you say something and you said it to me privately. Um, we know that uh, J. Edgar Hoover's uh, FBI was wicked. They were evil. They were anti-Americans with tremendous power in the middle of the American government. Given that power, they did every kind of harm. We ought not to, to put it past them to want to murder people. They well, did kill people. We know what uh, they did, just what we know is that they surveilled Martin Luther King's private life. They found out about his extramarital affairs. They found out that he had plagiarized his dissertation in his PhD. They found out he w- that he was willing to accept support from communists and black Muslims and other extremist groups. And they tried to blackmail him. They tried to silence him. They tried to blackmail others into not supporting him. The, the FBI is now being weaponized against Donald Trump and his supporters. Um, worse, I mean, they didn't, they never raided Martin Luther King's home. Although I have to say state police were the, the really terrible ones in the case of Martin Luther King. The police controlled in places like Alabama and Mississippi and Georgia. Those state police forces were a real problem because they were run by openly racist governors. Um, so parallels are not perfect, okay? But they are striking. They are striking. Both Martin Luther King and Donald Trump had character issues, as you would say. Neither one was a an ideal or model Christian. Uh, in fact, Neither one was a particularly orthodox Christian. Uh, Martin Luther King in grad school had written things, you know, putting casting doubt on the resurrection. He was a mod- he had a modernist, ultra liberal theology, but he stood for the Christian view of the person. He stood for traditional biblical morality in treating pe- in treating human beings, and he was an enormous force for good in American politics. But a lot of people hated him. And so they, they reached for the stuff in his personal life. They reached for the flaws in his persona, just the way people did with Donald Trump. They tried to discredit and dismiss all the people he spoke for to, to blow up their icon and leave them without a leader based on, oh, but he's not faithful to his wife. Oh, he said something to Billy Bush on Access Hollywood. Oh, he's, he doesn't have perfect table manners. And I don't think he's very winsome. 
it, it was just a scam, a scam to discredit a leader whose cause they don't want to succeed. Now, that's the point. Is, in the is 1960s, people who hated King, it was because they, they viscerally despised black people. and they, they considered them disgusting or dangerous or scary. The people who hate Trump now, it's because they viscerally hate Christians and working class people. They want to see us die off. They want to see us sent into the rice paddies or sent off like kulaks to vanish. They hate us. They hate us with a violent passion. And if you go on Twitter, you see all the people, these various blue check liberals fantasizing about Donald Trump being executed for treason, for, you know, having cocktail napkins from the White House at Mar-a-Lago. These people can barely contain themselves. They would love to murder us. And that's why they're turning America into something like 1936 Spain, which was what's the wave of leftist anti-Christian violence that started the Spanish Civil War. And what I say is if they give us Spain 1936, we're going to give them Spain 1939 because sometimes the good guys win. Well, this is the thing is that, um, I mean, I've talked about this a lot and in my upcoming book, Letter to the American Church, I touch on it. A lot of Christians um, who either, let's just say that they don't understand that there are times when Christians are called to fight. Now, uh, in the Revolutionary War, that meant picking up a a musket. Uh, But I don't mean that. I mean, any kind of fight where you say, I've got to do something. I've got to vote. I've got to get involved politically. I've got to raise money for this good cause. I've got to do these kinds of things. There are many Christians today who don't understand the theology of the Bible, and they feel that any kind of engagement, fighting evil, it's like, that's not my job. They're being gaslit, too. What's that? They're being gaslit by the culture and sometimes their own pastors who tell them, if you try to put your biblical morality in action in the government. That's theocracy. You're a Christian nationalist. That's the next thing to being a white nationalist. I mean, that's basically where I wanted to go with this. We've got the rest of the hour with you. But folks, you've got to understand God calls us to stand for what is right and true and good and beautiful. He calls us to fight for those things. The only question is how, but don't let anyone lie to you and tell you, don't do anything. It's not your job. Don't be political. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Human beings suffer when Christians uh, buy that lie. We'll be right back. Hey, get rhythm. When you get the blues, come on, get rhythm. When you get the blues. Folks, I'm talking to John Zmirak. John, your article on the correlation between Dr. King and Donald Trump, uh, hilarious and brilliant as it is, um, is at stream.org. So I hope people will go to stream.org and, and find it or they uh, I will uh, share. I have already shared it on my social media. But you seem to be implying that they want to kill Donald Trump. Yes, I'm afraid that if they can't uh, I, I will just say this. I am 100% morally certain that if this regime, the Bidenist occupational government, if whatever you call this thing that is ruling America can't fix the election, can't steal the election, can't keep Donald Trump from running in the election, 
if, if they are faced with the prospect of Donald Trump running and winning, I think they would, I would absolutely not put it past 90% of the Democrats in Congress, <laughs> people in the FBI, certainly the people in the White House, they would rather kill Donald Trump than see him be back in the White House. Once you've said that someone is like Hitler and that opposing him is like being part of the French resistance, once you've said that, you know, it, it, it's a war against fascism and racism and transphobia and every other form of evil, once you've whipped yourself up into that kind of fanatical hatred that characterized the French Revolution, the Nazi Revolution, the Soviet Revolution, the Khmer Rouge, the Red Guard in China. We have created so-called elites. We've created cadres of fanatically hateful people. Unfortunately, they're not out in the streets. They're in the White House. They're in the FBI. They're in the CIA and the NSA. And now the IRS. We are being ruled by these lunatics, and we are their targets. So, yes, well, I pray for Donald Trump's personal safety. Um, they'll kill him the way people killed King. We also have to be clear for people that know, don't know the history. There were a lot of things wrong with uh, Martin Luther King Jr., just like there are a lot of things wrong with Donald Trump, things with which I disagree. But, folks, do you understand? You want to talk about the enemy uh, of the good is the perfect. So when you demonize somebody like Martin Luther King Jr. because of whatever it is, you don't like him. <coughs> what happened when he was murdered? The good that he was doing was wiped away. And what replaced him to lead black America was the Black Panthers was the Black Panthers was uh, uh, Jesse Jackson, was, uh, was um, uh, the, the, the Malcolm X. In other words, the, the, the folks that came in, uh, Al Sharpton, to, to be the voice of Black America, you suddenly realized if you actually cared about Black America, you would want Martin Luther King Jr. to be their leader because he had a moral ballast. Yeah. He understood uh, that the scriptures are sacred and that this is a holy thing to be nonviolent. He also um, understood that the founders of this nation were not evil, that what they gave us in our founding documents were promissory notes. He said that once he was killed, it was replaced effectively with an anti-American Marxist nihilist view of the world. And so the people who were targeting targeting Donald Trump, who Many of them have legitimate reasons for disliking him, right? No, I want to say to those no, folks, no, ladies no, and gentlemen, I, don't agree. I think they are pretexts. They're fig leaves. Well, no, no, no. What I'm saying is it's both. It's both. But I'm, I want to give there's a handful of people. I want to give them the benefit of the doubt. And I want to say right. to you folks, <laughs> even if you're right on X, Y and Z, I'm going to give that to you. I'm going to say even if that's true, do you understand who is opposing him? Do you understand what will happen? If his leadership were to go away, do you understand what will happen? You think that will be a good thing. I'm here to warn you and to say you have no idea of the people who are opposing him and what will happen if his leadership 
and the leadership of the MAGA Americans goes away, you don't realize what you're doing. You don't have any idea what you're inviting. It wow. is horrific. You don't believe it because most of you don't believe in evil. You haven't seen it in our time. John and I are going to talk about the movie Mr. Jones. There has been evil in history that is so beyond what any of us have ever glimpsed. We need to understand the world has not changed. That is happening again. It will come back if we don't stand against it. I just wanted to make that point. Yeah, well, <laughs> the left and the elites think that if they kill our leader, we will shut up and go back to being the beaten down, fooled, passive victims that we were in the, in the 90s and 2000s. And think of it this way. After Ronald Reagan, every Republican nominated was to- 100% in the pocket of the business elites and had absolutely no concern about the social issues. George H.W. W. Bush, George W. Bush, Bob Dole, John, uh, Mitt Romney, John McCain. These were not people who gave a damn about anything that Christians care about. They would barely, barely lean a little bit and say, yeah, I'm pro-life, wink, wink, wink. And we know they weren't. Um, So for 20 years, we just sort of laid back and took it and let let, let ourselves be, be fooled. And finally, we found a candidate in Donald Trump who needed us. He needed our support, so he had to deliver for us. And we've done a lot since then. We've accomplished things. Folks, we'll be right back with John Smirak. Folks, I'm having a freewheeling conversation with my freewheeling friend, the world's oldest boy genius. John, I don't know when you got that title felt to you but you are the world's oldest living boy genius. Let's keep going. Well, so uh, we are talking about my piece at stream.org on how Donald Trump is like Martin Luther King in being a leader of a huge segment of American people that have been neglected and mistreated by the government, by the system, and that he is hated the way Martin Luther King was hated because powerful interests hold his supporters in contempt. They are bigoted, just as white racists were bigoted. They're bigoted against people in the co- who live in the country, people who work blue-collar jobs, people who want to carry guns, and people who want to practice traditional Christianity. And they have made up a slur, a hate term, to use to justify dehumanizing, marginalizing, and politically persecuting us. And that term is Christian nationalist. And if you push them, if you actually insist, demand that they define the terms, if you unpack Christian nationalists, you find it describes virtually every president of the United States of America, including Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln, who weren't Orthodox Christians. Probably the only exceptions to the Christian, to being a Christian nationalist would have been Woodrow Wilson. 
who was a pantheist globalist lunatic. Um, and then Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter is the first president, apart from Woodrow Wilson, who would not fit the Christian nationalist definition because Christian nationalist means you want to focus on America first rather than a globalist utopia or a tribalist racialist enclave. So the Confederates in that sense were tribalists. Um, you want to focus on America as a nation and you want Christian moral values as found in the natural law written in the human heart and often transcribed in the Bible, but fundamentally found rationally as the constitute, as the declaration said, nature and nature's God by reflecting reason, rational morality based on there being a God and him showing us his works and his will in his creation, the book of creation. You want that to infuse the public square instead of the morality of the Marquis de Sade or Karl Marx or the Church of Satan or Adolf Hitler. Um, something, some moral code has to pervade the public square. You have to, have, somebody's got to be in charge. If it's not the natural law that, that was, was used at the Nuremberg trials to justify hanging the Nazis, the natural law which said that slavery and segregation were wrong. If it's not the natural law, then it will be the Darwinism of Adolf Hitler, the Marxism of Joseph Stalin, the hedonistic depravity of the Marquis de Sade and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Oh, yeah, let me remind people. Ruth Bader Ginsburg's arguments for abortion were taken from the Marquis de Sade's book, Philosophy in the Bedroom. Now, I don't think she read it directly. She got it from Simone de Beauvoir, who stole it from de Sade. But again, that's another article of mine at the stream.org. Yeah. You know, uh, I go around the country and often speak to conservatives and Christians and ask them, uh, are you familiar with the stream.org? They go, no, what's that? Mm. That, to me, is an example of the problem that we're in, is that distributing the truth getting our voices heard. We know that the left has a monopoly, but we also know that the mushy middle who works with the left, whether it's Fox uh, or whoever it is, they also, um, they, they kind of own the real estate and it's hard for us to get our voices out there. So I want to say to my audience again and again and again and again, we need your help, folks. We need your help getting these videos out. Maybe you listen as a podcast, sharing it with people. Uh, please, share John's articles on social media. Please retweet. Don't like things. Retweet them. Share them. Do what you can, because I'm astonished when I know how much good is happening and how many, how few people know about it. We need yeah. to re-educate Americans who are open-minded as to who this nation is, as, as to what natural law is, as to where these ideas come from, where they have led. We need to do that. We try to do that on this program, but we actually need your help. If I could offer a bonus, if you know any self-righteous, thin-skinned, never-Trumper Christians, um, send them my article about Trump being like Martin Luther King. You will be shaving months off their lives, and they will do less damage in the world. I promise. It's so, I tell you, it is so, it's just amazing. There are people out there that are just, they're unhinged. And, you know, look, um, we're supposed to pray for our enemies. 
it doesn't mean I we're supposed to pray for their deathbed. Well, John, stop. We're not, come on. What I'm trying to say is we're we're supposed we're not supposed to work with our enemies to to work against God, but we're supposed to pray for them and hope that they could find a moment of repentance that somehow God would be able to reach them and that they would understand. Look, I say this because unlike John Zmirak, I was once firmly in that camp. I was once just drifting along. Uh, uh, I, I know that I'm still guilty of this today, if given the opportunity, but God in his mercy reached me in his mercy. I just want to be clear in his mercy. He reached me. And there are people out there, folks, do your part, pray for them, share anything that you can. Uh, there's a lot that every single uh, one of us can do. Before we go to the break, folks, I'm obliged to remind you we're doing a fundraiser with Food for the Poor. There are people suffering in the Ukraine because of the malfeasance of this horrible, horrible pseudo administration. The people that are suffering, they, they, they don't know, they don't need to know about the politics, but they need to know that there are people out there in the name of God trying to help them to feed their kids. I'm asking you bluntly and clearly. Go to metaxastalk.com. Please click on the banner. Give what you can. You can do a tremendous amount of good. Food for the Poor is an extraordinary organization. We wouldn't partner with them if they weren't. I also want to give you the phone number, and I'm begging you folks, call this number, 844-863-HOPE, 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 or go to metaxastalk.com. We'll be right back. Hey there, folks. Welcome back. Uh, I'm excited right now. You know that on this program, we're doing a, a, a fundraiser for food for the poor. But I said, you know, I want to bring somebody on who's part of the Salem Radio Network, who's part of the brass. My friend Tom <laughs> Tradup. He's the vice president of news and talk programming. But Tom, you have a relationship with food for the poor. You understand why. I'm going out on a limb and asking my listeners to reach into their pockets for God's purposes. So I, I wanted you to help us understand it uh, in a way that I can't really myself um, communicate successfully. So what, what do you know about this that, uh, that I wouldn't know? Well, first off, thank you for having me on the show. I'm here in the, I'm in the fortress of Metaxas. We've got the mic flag. We've got the travel bag. You know, we're, we're, we're here pushing the Eric Metaxas show every time we get. Now, by the way, if you go to metaxastalk.com, ladies and gentlemen, uh, you have access to all this swag, all this incredible <laughs> product. If you go to metaxastalk.com, you'll see it. But we want you to go to metaxastalk.com, at least today in part, to click on the banner to help people who are suffering. That's right. Uh, because of evil men around the world, there's suffering. Um, and if you go to metaxastalk.com, you'll click on the banner. But, but go ahead, Tom, try it up and tell us more. Well, thank you, Eric. You know, Food for the Poor is a nonprofit organization. They're based in Coconut Creek, Florida. 
We've worked with them for over a dozen years, and they help the poorest of the poor in 17 nations here in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, and I've traveled with them to Guatemala, to Haiti, to a number of other um, countries with them, and actually seen their work on the ground. They're absolutely the best in the business. Their overhead is the smallest in the business. So every dollar you give really goes directly to help the poor. We've expanded because of the war in Ukraine. Um, and regardless of what people think, and you know, I've heard the debates back and forth. Some of our talk show hosts, when we started the campaign, were like, why do I want to get any money for people that are refugees in Ukraine when we're paying $7 a gallon for gas here in California? Well, it's true. America's got problems and we all have to pay the light bill and we all have you know, personal issues. But when you think about the children who have been displaced, there are over 500,000 Ukrainian children who've been separated from their parents. Usually the dad had to stay behind in order to fight in the war. So they were just with their mom, but now they've been separated from their moms. And if you had a 12-year-old child, either your child or your grandchild, and they were alone in a, a scary place, a bomb shelter, or in a foreign country where somebody's you know, playing host to them, you would want people just like the men and women listening to the Eric Metaxas show and watching you right now to open up your hearts and your wallets and, and help. And the fact is that because of Food for the Poor's donations, they already have a ton of food donated through themselves and their ministry partners. One dollar, one dollar delivers four meals to refugees in Ukraine. Two dollars delivers eight you know, you do the math, you can figure it out. A $10 or $20 contribution, a hundred, a thousand would be fabulous. Thank you very much. But we're here simply to ask you to think a little bit outside yourself. So many things going on in the world that are scary and crazy, like the Mar-a-Lago uh, raid that you've been talking about, Eric. Um, I, I know it's a tough time for a lot of people in this economy, but we are asking you to maybe dig deep, think a little bit outside yourself. We've all done it. I've been on trips with Food for the Poor, and as I said, seen them up close and personal. When you call Eric's number, which is 844-863-4673, or to make it easier, it's 844-863-HOPE, because you're giving hope to these children overseas. Um, you are really being the hands and feet of Jesus uh, as we're called to, Eric was wise to mention that we're we're called to help the poorest of the poor, and there's nobody who does it better than food for the poor. Hey, everybody! Tom Woods here, joined once again by Jason Jewell, chairman of the Department of Humanities at Faulkner University. We're going to continue our discussion of communism, and we're going to today briefly visit both China and Eastern Europe and hit some of the I can't call them highlights, but I guess lowlights from those places. Jason, you'll recall, just released a brand new course on the crimes of communism for libertyclassroom.com, the site that I've had for 10 years that teaches the real stuff that for one reason or another, we're not being taught in the official institutions. So check that out. I'm celebrating the release of Jason's course with a bit of a flash sale. So hurry up on over there before that goes away. So libertyclassroom.com is the website. Jason, welcome back. It's great to be back with you, Tom. All right, more communism, just what the world needs. But of course, we need the truth about it. And you're not going to get that in 
most settings. You certainly won't get it in the entertainment world, that's for sure. And yet there is so much fodder for important dramas and documentaries, and yet so little is done with it. Anyway, we finished up saying a little something about Stalin last time. I want to, there's so many different areas covered in your course here. It's hard to know what to choose, but I I do want to talk about particularly significant episodes in world history, and that would include communism in China. Because there, the numbers that you hear about deaths seem so mind-boggling that you think they can't possibly be real. And then you do have apologists who say that, well, you know, it's the old bad weather excuse, right? <laughs> you know, things like that. <laughs> you know, the, there's unusually bad weather in these communist countries, and that's why so many people starved or whatever it is. But let's pause and say something about China. You would think this would be an area where everybody would agree. There, there couldn't possibly be anybody who would say, actually, Mao was a great humanitarian, you know? And yet, somehow, we, we have that in academia. So can you give us a Reader's Digest version of the atrocities? Yeah, it's interesting that even the Chinese Communist Party has moderated its adulation of Mao in recent years. And if you go to China today and take a tour and you'll get the Communist Party line and they will acknowledge that Mao wasn't all good. They, they still hail him as a, a great hero, but there is increasingly some acknowledgement of the horrors brought about by the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. And these are the two major episodes in Chinese communist history where we have deaths in the tens of millions. Of course, the communists were uh, murdering people on a large scale even before that, before the late 1950s, going back to their early days in the 1920s in certain cities like Shanghai, when they would momentarily take control of a region or a city. They would try to liquidate landowners and stir up artificial class hatreds and all that sort of thing. So I talk about that at some length in the lecture on China. But after they gained control of the country at the conclusion of a civil war after World War II, they declare the People's Republic of China there in the late 1940s. And from that point on, they are very aggressively moving towards collectivization. Mao was a great uh, admirer of Joseph Stalin. And when Nikita Khrushchev embarks on the de-Stalinization campaign in the mid-1950s, Mao considers Khrushchev to be a, a traitor to true socialism. So he's pursuing a more or less Stalinist line throughout the 50s, 60s, and 70s. But the two big episodes, uh, as I said, are the Great Leap Forward in the late 1950s and the Cultural Revolution starting in 1966. So the more devastating of these was the Great Leap Forward. This is where um, Mao had started implementing some collectivization of agriculture. And after the first year, he thought the signs were pretty encouraging. There had been a very good harvest that first season. And so he wanted to push forward and not only continue with the collectivization, but also he had this kind of harebrained scheme of bringing industry to the countryside. And they were setting up what came to be called backyard furnaces and the peasants' farms and things like that. So the, the idea was that the peasants were both going to be moving into these agricultural communes that would be self-sufficient, but then they would also be doing industrial work out there in the countryside on this small scale. Well, the industrial work they did all was 
ridiculous. None of the products of these backyard furnaces were any good. So that was a big waste of time. There was also a lot of misallocation of capital and a forcing of the peasants to upset the, you know, kind of what they had over centuries determined was the proper ecological balance in their regions, on their farms. But they made these peasants do this very intensive cultivation of cereal crops to the exclusion of almost everything else. And they also imported the crackpot ideas of the Soviet scientist Lysenko, who tried to bring in Marxist class ideology into uh, the natural sciences. And so they told the peasants that they had to sow seed at a much denser rate than they would normally do, because supposedly, according to Lysenko, the seeds would benefit from being in close proximity to their comrades, the other seeds. It was all completely crazy stuff. So when they started doing this on a large scale, the crops fail. You've got uh, massive shortages in the countryside, but these communes are all supposed to be self-sufficient. So they're even prohibited from trading with one another. You're supposed to have all of this great stuff being produced in your commune and a surplus that then can be taken to the cities. So the Communist Party officials go to get all this alleged surplus. And of course, there's none there. So they take the food that the peasants need for themselves to survive and then continue to threaten them to say, well, we know you've got more grain hidden in your basements or wherever. And so they're killing the peasants and threatening them and trying to get this non-existent treasure troves of grain from them. So this goes on for a couple of years. And one of the craziest things about it is that for the first year or so, everyone conspired to lead Mao to think that it was going great. They were also scared of confronting him with the truth of what was happening in the countryside, that in fact, China was even exporting grain during the early stages of the Great Leap Forward, grain that the peasants needed to survive and the peasants were starving. So we've got, a, again, rough estimates, somewhere between 20 and 45 million people dying in the space of a couple of years here in the late 1950s as a result of this Great Leap Forward, which was actually a Great Leap Backward for Chinese civilization. The other big incident in Chinese communist history was the Cultural Revolution, which goes from 1966 up until the death of Mao in 1976. And this was a a phase in which Mao was trying to reclaim direct control of the Communist Party. After the Great Leap Forward and the disaster that everybody had ultimately been forced to acknowledge, Mao was forced to give up some control of the party to other officials. And this was the situation that persisted for several years. But then in 1966, Mao thought that he was in danger of becoming a mere figurehead. And he wanted to make sure that he stayed in control. And so he mobilized. He had some allies in the top ranks of the Chinese Communist Party, in particular, the guy who was in charge of the People's Liberation Army. And one of the things that had been implemented in the early 1960s was obligatory military training for all teenagers. So what they decide to do then is indoctrinate these teenagers who are doing this military training into this cult of personality for Mao. And in 1966, Mao decides to kind of unleash these teenagers and and university students onto the other elements of the Communist Party that he thinks might not be loyal to him. So we've got uh, some of the 
folks listening have probably seen images of this, these, these teenagers in the, in the military uniforms carrying these little, little red books that were the sayings of Chairman Mao and going around and uh, challenging anyone who had ever voiced any kind of criticism of Mao or any sort of doubts about the Communist Party line or anything like that. So a lot of intellectuals were targeted. A lot of people who were not considered to be loyal to Mao personally were targeted. And so throughout China, we've got these what were called Red Guards kind of unleashed on the population. And Mao actually gave the order that all schools and universities were going to be shut down for six months. And while the schools were shut down, these idle teenagers who didn't have anything to do formed gangs and mobs and went out and um, essentially were instituting a reign of terror in most of the Chinese cities. The, the police in these cities were told to back the Red Guards to support them in what they were doing. And so there's, there's a lot of mob violence uh, during those years. Um, it even gets to the point where some historians have described what's going on in, in some stages of the Cultural Revolution as a civil war. Uh, but in the end, we've got uh, probably an estimate of, you know, eight to 10 million people who are killed as a result over this 10-year period. It's hard to know what to say about this, right? I mean, you're just left speechless at it. And that there are people who, even to this day, would make excuses for it or make communism seem as if it's oddly chic, you know, in some way. And yet the people were told to demonize, like, I... You know, I'm quite sure Alex Jones has his problems, but it's some kind of, it's a psyop on the population that he's the demon, but these people who carried out atrocities on a scale the mind reels at, barely acknowledged. I mean, yeah, 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 you, you do get I me. Mean, even John Lennon says something about Mao in a song, you know? I mean, there's just some acknowledgement, but you, it's so often that you get, but, you know, Stalin did help to industrialize Russia. You know, but, uh, you know, Mao did bring China into the modern world. I mean, there's no but. <laughs> you know, there's, there's no but for Alex Jones. You can say, well, on the other hand, he did do, there's nothing. And, and I say this as I'm, I'm not really in the Alex Jones orbit. I just raise him as an example of the kind of person who is enemy number one of the regime, but really whose crimes are, the needle doesn't even move when compared to people we should be concerned about. And yet, I wouldn't say not a word, but but a very, very muted response to all this. Yeah. And it really is astonishing how long a lot of the information about these episodes, how, how long it took to become more widely known. I mean, you may remember, Tom, I spent a year in China in the late 90s as a professor at a, a college there. And the students that I came into contact with you know, knew next to nothing about these episodes. They knew a little more about the Cultural Revolution. There were a lot more people who had, you know, within living memory, who had been directly involved and who were survivors of it in various forms. So there had been some family history passed down for most people. But the Great Leap Forward was still um, yeah, a mystery to a lot of people. And the information was so tightly controlled in so many of these districts, I mean, e even within China. You know, it's a, it's a very large country, the information from one province to the next, you know, wasn't flowing very well. And so it took a long, long time for some of these stories to start coming out and some of the calculations that had to be made to try to figure out just how many people suffered from these events. 
But uh, I remember one of my acts of subversion to the Chinese communist regime when I was living there in China, I did make a trip down to Hong Kong at one point and came back with some books that had been released. This was in the late 1990s again. Some books that had recently been released, including Jasper Becker's book, Hungry Ghosts, which is uh, one of the best treatments of The Great Leap Forward and goes into great detail about the kinds of uh, suffering that had gone on. And I passed those books to my students who were uh, completely shocked by the things they were reading and what had been kept from them you know, over the years. So we do now have, again, more information coming out about these incidents to the point where, as I said, the, even the Chinese Communist Party has been forced to moderate its praise of Mao to some extent. But this is easily the largest scale repression in human history that led to the death of up to 65 million people, depending on you know, which estimates you're looking at. And this doesn't even include the Chinese Lao Gai, the, their concentration camp system, which was the largest penal system in human history and which you know, ruined the lives of an additional tens of millions of people who were uh, sent there for imagined defenses and you know, wound up either never being released and dying in the camps or losing their livelihood and all of their social status as a result. Because in Mao's China, once you're a suspect, you're always a suspect. There's never any room for the possibility of a mistaken accusation or anything like that. So we've got um, you know, many tens of millions, maybe up to 100 million people whose, whose lives were either ended or ruined by Mao's regime. I want to take a really, really quick tour of Eastern Europe here. I mean, there's so much more to your course, but people are just going to have to take it and uh, listen to it while they're driving around. But Eastern Europe, I would like to just know a little bit more about because I think we know more about the Soviet Union, what life was like there, than we do about what life would have been like in Romania day-to-day or in any of these other countries day-to-day. Poland, for example, what was day-to-day life like? Was it less repressive in Eastern Europe than it was in the Soviet Union itself? What can we say about life in Eastern Europe? Can we draw broad conclusions or were the individual cases very different from each other? Well, I think if you're looking, if you want to generalize, I think you can generalize about Eastern Europe. It helps to think of it in essentially two phases during the communist era. And the first phase would be from the time that the Red Army moves into those countries in the latter stages of World War II. So we're talking about, again, Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Bulgaria, Romania. They didn't get into Yugoslavia. Tito uh, kept them out of Yugoslavia, and there was a rupture between Tito and Stalin, as you know. But all these other countries, they essentially have, even if there's some sort of lip service paid to democratic institutions or some kind of elections being held, you know, within a few years of the end of the war, the communists have taken over all of these governments, uh, you know, with, with Soviet help. And from the late 1940s up until the death of Stalin, maybe a year or two after the death of Stalin, we have tremendous repression going on in those countries of Eastern Europe. And all the same kinds of things that were happening in the Soviet Union were happening in those countries. The Bolsheviks made it very clear that they were in the process of Sovietizing those countries. And so you've got horrific stories coming out of Bulgaria and Romania and all the rest of camps being set up and the re-education, the horrible treatment of the church and seminarians, anyone suspected of 
harboring any kind of uh, anti-communist sentiment or resistance. All of these people are under a huge amount of repression. After the death of Stalin and we have the de-Stalinization campaign in the Soviet Union, which I don't really go into in the course because I'm focusing on you know, the repressions themselves, but things do moderate. Um, e- even the, the Bolsheviks themselves seem to have recognized by that point that the things they're doing just aren't working. They're not bringing about the results they had hoped. So from the mid-50s up until the 80s, things aren't quite as crazy, but the repression never fully goes away. You've always got you know, the surveillance state. You've got the, the secret police and the uh, informers everywhere. You have the censorship and the, all the various problems that go along with the, the central planning. All that kind of stuff is present in all those countries of Eastern Europe. And you occasionally do have big crackdowns. And the most famous examples here are in uh, East Germany in 1953, in Hungary in 1956, and in Czechoslovakia in 1968 with the so-called Prague Spring. Then in the 80s, in the early 80s, you did have martial law implemented in Poland in response to the activities of the labor union Solidarity, which was protesting various aspects of what was going on in Poland. So there's always some level of repression, but it's definitely less so than what you had in the late 40s and early 50s. But the estimates are that roughly a million people are killed in Eastern Europe during that period from the mid-40s up until 1989. So it's definitely you know, not on the scale of what you saw in China or in the Soviet Union, but still a huge human toll. What would you say of all the areas of the world that you studied would be the worst but yet least known atrocity or historical episode? Now, this is a very hard question to answer. It's like, what's your favorite movie? In a way, you know, like what you've, I have 8 million things to choose from. I can never answer those questions. What's my favorite song? I have no idea. So I don't know how hard I'm making this on you. Yeah, I would probably point to two places when I think of like your average, you know, young adult American, what they know virtually nothing about. And that would be probably the, uh, the Cambodia killing fields in the late 1970s. And then what happened in Afghanistan in the 1980s. So in in Cambodia, the communists are only in charge for a little over three years, maybe three and a half years. Yet they brought about the deaths of somewhere between 15 and 25% of the Cambodian population. So that was probably the one place where the communists said, we are not going to have any kind of transition from capitalism into a period of socialism into communism. They were dead set on putting, you know, getting everything in at once. And so they were doing these crazy things like uh, they, they forcibly evacuated all the cities in Cambodia and they made everybody relocate to the countryside. They wound up uh, in, in one region of the country in the eastern part of Cambodia, which borders Vietnam. They decided that the Vietnamese communists were undermining them and that the population of that region was assisting Vietnam too much. And so they basically said that entire district of Cambodia um, is, has the death penalty you know, assessed on it. And so they went in and they, they killed a huge, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in that district. So in a very short period of time, we've got a population in 1975 in Cambodia of about 8 million people. And in 1979, 
somewhere between six and seven million people still living in Cambodia. So that was probably the most drastic repression that we saw anywhere in the world. Uh, The other example I think that most people don't know about in America today is Afghanistan. And, you know, uh, Tom, when you and I were growing up in the 1980s, we would occasionally hear things about what was going on in Afghanistan because the communists staged a coup there in 1978 and then tried to bring in a lot of very radical changes that prompted resistance among the population. And that led to a Soviet invasion of Afghanistan at the end of 1979. So throughout the 1980s, there's a Soviet presence in Afghanistan, a civil war going on there. And out of a population of about 15 million people in Afghanistan, uh, about 10% of those people are killed during that decade. And up to about half of the population is forced from its homes. So we had millions of Afghan refugees pouring over into Pakistan and Iran, and some also coming to Europe and to the United States in the 1980s, uh, probably about 5 million people altogether. And then another 2 million people stayed within Afghanistan, but lost their homes because of the military action. And so probably about half of the population of Afghanistan lost their homes. And then you've got huge numbers of stories of atrocities being perpetrated by both the Soviet army and by the communist government in Afghanistan, which went on a radically secular agenda and tried to outlaw Islam, which was the religion of 99% of the Afghan population. They ran the entire Jewish community out of the capital city of Kabul. Those people all fled to Israel in the late 1970s and early 1980s. So those are two examples that I think most Americans have probably never heard of, but of extremely wide-scale repression and mass murder that we're still learning some of the facts about the scale of what went on there and the uh, just the horrific experiences that, that people had in those places. Well, it's hard to know how to end this because, of course, we there are so many parts of the world we could talk about. You, you cover pretty much everywhere. You, you leave no stone unturned in telling these real stories and documenting what's what really happened. And as we both acknowledged, this is not information that people were just going to get naturally through the ordinary course of their educations. This is something you have to go out of your way to find. And you've helped to make it that much easier to find by means of your course. So the way to get this course on the crimes of communism is to go to libertyclassroom.com. We don't sell the courses a la carte. You get the whole membership. You get all the courses. And it's super duper inexpensive when you think about how much you're paying for even one community college credit hour compared to all the stuff we have. And in honor of Jason's course, if you use coupon code Jason, then you get a pretty big discount. I'm not going to say how big, but boy, you're going to have a big old grin on your face, ear to ear, all the different subscription plans They're all going to be at a big discount, but just temporarily. Jason's a great guy and his course is wonderful, but all good things must come to an end. So head to libertyclassroom.com, use coupon code Jason. Well, Jason, thanks again for doing this. Now you can finally relax, and yet now the school year has started, now you can't relax. Yeah, it's never a dull moment around here, Tom, but I've gotten used to it. All right. Well, thanks again, Jason. I appreciate it. Thanks, Tom. All right, everybody. We're not going to do any coupon codes. We're just going to do... A flash sale at libertyclassroom.com. So head on over there, take advantage of that, and enjoy Jason's course and all the others that we got there for you. This is the history and economics they didn't teach you, as I like to put it. See you tomorrow, everybody. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. 
Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.